All right, so last week, if you were with us, we saw Mary Magdalene go early to the tomb of Jesus before um, the, the sun actually came up while it was still dark in order to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. And so she got there, if you remember this, and she noticed something that shocked her. She noticed that that big stone, which had previously uh, sealed the tomb, had been rolled away. It's the last thing she expected in the world. And so she's stunned. She takes off running in order to tell Peter and John. She tells them the, ro- the stone has been rolled away. They're stunned. They start running to the tomb as well. If you remember last week, John wants the whole world to know he beat Peter to the tomb. And so after he gets there, he doesn't go in, but he looks in and he sees the linen cloths that had been wrapped around Jesus by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea on Friday afternoon. Those linen cloths are lying there. That's what John sees. Then all of a sudden, Peter comes up, huffing and puffing, right? And in classic Peter style, impulsive Peter, barges right into the tomb. John's still out there thinking about it. He just barges right in, and he looks. He sees the linen cloths as well, but Peter also saw the face cloth that had been on Jesus' head, and it's neatly folded up and in a place by itself. And so, as I said last week, what Peter and John saw in that empty tomb was not the signs of robbery. What they saw was the sign of a resurrection. And I say that because Matthew's um, gospel tells us that after the soldiers who had been guarding the tomb went to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, and told them about the angel and the empty tomb, right? Uh, What did the Jewish religious leaders do? They paid off the soldiers and said, lie and tell everybody the disciples came at night while you were sleeping and stole the body. Did you guys know there's still people that believe that to this day? They actually believe that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Okay, so we're really supposed to believe that these guys who were scared out of their minds, who thought they could be arrested at any moment, who thought they were going to end up on a cross like their master and Lord, and they're so scared they're hiding um, in, in, in a room somewhere in Jerusalem that all of a sudden they mustered up the courage to go to Jesus' tomb to sneak past the sleeping guards. By the way, I don't don't believe, don't accept for a moment the guards fell asleep. That's another sermon for another time. But do you really want us to believe that they snuck by the sleeping guards and then they all grabbed the big stone? All right, try to be quiet. One, two, three, bush, right? While the guards are still sleeping. And then they go into the tomb and they unwrap Jesus' body and leave the linen cloth there, and they fold up his face cloth and leave it, and then they grab his body, right, and they tiptoe past, please give me a break. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so this was not a robbery. It was, in fact, a historical event called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's alive. Now, John was the first one who believed in the risen Christ. We see that by way of review in verse eight, okay? So it says now in verse eight that the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, he wants to keep reminding us of that, also went in, and look at this, and he saw and, shout out the next word, please. 
believed. John's faith is noteworthy because of this. John believed that Christ had risen before he saw the risen Christ. I love that. As far as we can tell, the other 10 disciples did not believe Jesus had risen until they actually saw the risen Christ with their own eyes. But John believed that Christ had risen before he actually saw the risen Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, don't you know that that's the pattern for the last 2,000 years? Ever since Jesus ascended, by the way, historic Christianity, biblical Christianity, same thing, right? True Christianity believes in the bodily resurrection and the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cults are the ones, some of them, who believe that all this stuff we're talking about is spiritual, like a ghost or a spirit. No, he got up in the same body that he was crucified. He got up and marched out of that tomb. And in that same resurrected body, he went up and ascended into the right hand of the Father. Okay, so bodily resurrection, bodily ascension, but John's faith is a pattern. Ever since Jesus ascended back into heaven where he remains until his second coming, John's faith is the kind of faith that the Lord wants us to have. Faith without sight. Which, by the way, will bring great blessings to our lives. Faith without sight. I want to demonstrate this from the scriptures and teach ahead a little bit. I usually don't do this, but it flows with the current subject that we're on right now. And so um, later in our message today, we're going to see that the risen Christ is going to appear to the disciples. But somebody's absent. You guys ever hear of doubting Thomas? Thomas is not there. So Jesus appears to the disciples, risen from the dead. Thomas is not there. The disciples are so excited, they later go to Thomas. We've seen the Lord! And I want you to see how Thomas responds. Okay, we're going to skip ahead. We usually don't do this, but go ahead and look at verse 25. Verse 25 of John 20. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, no doubt arms crossed, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's why he's called Doubting Thomas. Well, guess what, everybody? Eight days later, I don't know why he made him wait eight days, right? But eight days later, the risen Christ appeared to Thomas as well, and he extended his nail-scarred hands and basically said, examine away. And then Jesus said something very significant as we flow with this subject at hand. I want you to look at verse 29 right now. Verse 29, Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. As I said earlier, faith without sight will bring great blessings into our lives. You see, some people say this. They say, seeing is believing. But the truth is, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. If you really want to see, 
then you need to make a choice in your own life. Your dad can't make that choice for you, your mom or your uncle or your grandpa who used to be an elder in the church or whatever. Nobody can make the decision for you except for you alone, and you gotta come to terms with this, and you need to make a decision in your heart that you actually believe in the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who paid for your sins on Calvary, rose for your just, just, justification, and is alive today. And ladies and gentlemen, listen, if you will believe, then you will see. And I'm not asking anybody to take a blind leap of faith, right? Sometimes Christians are accused of, of just asking everybody, just take a blind leap of faith. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm not asking anybody to stand on the proverbial mountain and just kind of in the middle of the dark, just walk off the mountain and hope to God there's a God and maybe God, if he's alive, will catch me. No, that's not Christianity. As I've told you a thousand times before, the Christian faith is a reasonable faith that has a mountain of evidence to support it. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. Examine the evidence. Absolutely examine the evidence for yourself. But the bottom line is this. It is not until you truly believe that you will truly see and then a whole new world of spiritual reality will be opened up to you. So that's the, that's the decision that you have this morning. Do you want a whole new world of spiritual reality to open up to you or not? The ball is in your court. Now look at verse 11. Before I read verse 11, you need to know that Peter and John have examined the tomb, as I said earlier, and apparently they're gone. And then Mary catches up later, and she's thinking that someone took the body, so she's an emotional wreck. Now we look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Very, very interesting picture here. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head, one at the feet. Now stop right there, everybody please look at me. That's an amazing picture. She looks in. Right, And she sees two angels. And the two angels are sitting where Jesus' body had lain. One at his head, where his head was, and the other at his feet, where his feet were. Two angels sitting on this slab where the body of Jesus was. Is anyone thinking right now of an Old Testament picture in your mind? Anybody at all? What's that? Yes, the Ark of the Covenant. You guys remember I put pictures up before. The Ark of the Covenant, right? With the golden cherubim, two angels, and they're on the mercy seat, which is the place of propitiation where the old, uh, on the old covenant, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the, of, uh, of the animals. Right? What's propitiation mean? It's the place of satisfaction where a holy, just God's wrath against sin was satisfied because, in the Old Testament, it all pictured it, because, New Covenant, the Lamb of God came and he paid for the sins of the world. And so now, isn't it interesting that she sees this image inside of the empty tomb? How many of you guys believe Jesus died for you? He was buried for you. 
that he laid in the tomb for you, that he rose again for your justification. And so, man, every verse of the Bible is just important. Some are more important than others. Some are more practical than others. But it's amazing what's in the word of God here. Now look at verse 13. And so the angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. So she's having a conversation with the angels. Now apparently at some point, the angel's eyes divert from Mary to something or someone beyond Mary. And so now she's like turning around, right, in verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will. She must have been a strong gal. I'll just take him away. I'll grab the body, lift it up, and I'll take it. Just tell me what's going on. And so some of you may be wondering right now, why in the world didn't Mary recognize Jesus? She had been walking with him for months. She knew the Lord. Why didn't she recognize the Lord when she saw him? Well, there's lots of theories out there. One theory is that Jesus appeared to her incognito, kind of in disguise, which by the way is the way that he will later on on that first Easter Sunday appear to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You guys remember that story from Luke? Okay, Jesus appeared to them, they didn't recognize him, he gives them the greatest Bible study ever given in the history of mankind. I wanna hear it someday in heaven. But, okay, so that's why they say, some people say, Mary didn't recognize him. He appears incognito. Other people say, no, 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 it's, his, it's his, the fact that he retained his scars in his body, his resurrected body. And not only, they say, are there scars in his hands, feet, and side, but his face, even in his resurrected body, his face is somewhat disfigured from the beating that he took from the Jews and from the Romans. Won't that be a shock if we get to heaven and Jesus' face is somewhat disfigured and a reminder of what he did for us. It's just a theory. We don't know if it's true or not. Another theory is that, no, 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 it's very, it's very, very simple. Her eyes were clouded with tears, and she's very emotional, and that's why she did not recognize him. They're all, theory, they're all, they're all theories. They're all plausible theories. Um, and, but here's the thing. The text does not say why Mary didn't recognize him, so we cannot be dogmatic about this. Uh, but what we do know is that Mary was on a mission She's on a mission to find the body of Jesus, and if this gardener, whoever he is, has any information at all, she wants to know where in the world is the body. Now we look at verse 16. One word's gonna change everything, everybody. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, everybody shout out the name. Mary. Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means Teacher, if you have the King James or New King James, master. All right, so, so Jesus says, Mary, and it changes everything. That leads you to your next point, and that is all the good shepherd had to do was call Mary's name, and since she belonged in his flock, she responded. I love this. I love the relational aspect of this. 
If you were with us back when we studied John chapter 10, you know that in the ancient Near East, the, one of the primary, if not the primary vocation that all people, um, or most people, men and women by the way, um, chose for their livelihood was shepherding. Okay, and so you guys know this, the shepherds would take out their flock into the fields during the day. Those flocks would graze, trying to fatten them up, right? And, but then before nightfall, before the predators came, what would these shepherds do in various places? They would bring the sheep, their flocks, back to a sheep pen for the night. A lot of times these sheep pens were communal sheep pens. In other words, they were shared by multiple families in that local area. And so after a good night's sleep, the shepherds would get up, they'd go to the sheep pen, and they would stand, and they would call out their flocks um, to come for another day of grazing. And, And here's the picture I want you to see here. One by one, there's multiple shepherds, one by one, they would stand at the gate, and they would give their unique call to their flock. And each flock would only respond to the voice of their shepherd, not to anybody else. A stranger could call there, could stand there at the gate and call over and over and over and the sheep would not come out. They only came out when they heard the voice that they knew. You say, where are you going with this, pastor? Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them. You see the relational aspect here? And I know them, and they follow me. By the way, following Christ is an evidence of your salvation. If you are not following Jesus, you gotta ask yourself, am I a sheep? Right? My sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Neither will anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one's gonna snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are, go ahead and shout out the word, one. I and the Father are one. And so regarding Mary, here's the point again, all the good shepherd had to do was call her name, and since she belonged in his flock, she responded. Now, nothing's changed today. Shepherd and sheep are the same today as they were 2,000 years ago. In fact, I saw the video, again, on YouTube um, this past week. Um, I didn't show it here, because I know you guys can watch it later, but there's lots of videos about the unique call and the sheep only responding to their shepherd, their shepherd. And there's one that's really uh, interesting where a, a, apparently a class went on a field trip to a farm, and so they're all sitting you know, um, there outside a fence, and there's a big meadow, and there's all these sheep out there, and the shepherd had one student after another stand at the fence and give these crazy calls, right, trying to get the sheep's attention, and they barely even look up. They just keep grazing. And then finally, I think after four or five students did it, the shepherd goes, he stands at the fence, he gives this call, a unique call, and all of a sudden, one by one, their heads pop up, pop up, and they all start running into the shepherd. Now, I don't want anyone to look up YouTube right now. (laughs) If someone's looking up YouTube next to you, raise your hand so I can call them out right now, okay? I know it's tempting, I know it's tempting, but just wait till after the service, but you'll see it later on. 
here's the big question. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Do you know the voice of the good shepherd? Do you really know his voice? And are you following him? And so after Mary recognized Jesus, she's like, Rabboni, teacher, master, right? And she runs and she grabs him and she holds him like with a death grip. Jesus is kind of like, like this, right? And she won't let go. She, her, her attitude is, man, I lost you once, I'm not losing you again. Now how does Jesus respond to that? Look now at verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have yet, not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. First time Jesus calls the disciples his brothers. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Question, why did Jesus ask Mary to stop clinging to him? Answer, because he still needed to ascend to the Father. And so maybe as Mary has this death grip on Jesus, right, maybe he chuckles and says, Mary, I haven't yet ascended to the Father. And how will I? Unless you let me go. <laughs> you know, let me go. Stop clinging to me. Unless you want to go up to heaven with me. But you'll burn up in the atmosphere. Sometimes I go too far when I try to make these stories come alive. So don't think about Mary burning up in the atmosphere right now. We track that statement completely. And so, so, but she's got the death grip, right? Now, all kidding aside, in 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus Christ will bodily ascend into heaven. Same body that was crucified, same body that was risen, same resurrected body, he ascends back to the Father's right hand. That's 40 days, it's gonna happen. Now, here's the real reason why he says stop clinging to me. It's because after the ascension of Jesus Christ, everything changes regarding Mary's relationship with him, the disciples' relationship with him, and our relationship with him as well. And so one of the guys I read almost every week, John Phillips, he put it this way. All relationships were to be changed. And his ascension would bring a new situation. His followers would no longer be able to see and hear and touch him as before. A new and more permanent spiritual relationship was about to be forged. And so I've said it a thousand times. I know everybody knows this, but I, I love it. When Jesus went up, who came down? The Holy Spirit. And it's the best thing that could ever have happened for the church, for the early disciples and modern day disciples as well. Best thing. Jesus put it this way. He said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper, you guys remember him? The forgotten member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, by the way, who's just as important as the Father and the Son, one God eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. The best thing that could ever have happened was for the Lord to go back to heaven. Can you imagine if he would have stuck around? If Jesus would have stuck around, how in the world would we ever get to him? Right? 
If he stayed on the earth for the last 2,000, how would we ever get to him? There would be thousands of people constantly around him. We'd have to press through a crowd. Jesus, Jesus, I really want to see you, Lord. You got to call and make an appointment. (laughs) Oh, you want to see Jesus? Let me check his calendar. How about 18 months at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday? Will that work for you, right? No. When Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down and now there's a new way of relating to God and that is through his Holy Spirit who is always accessible to us. Always available. Always accessible. So aren't you glad you don't have to press through a crowd? Aren't you glad you don't have to call and make an appointment to see Jesus? No, the Spirit of God lives in people who are born again. He does. If you're born again, and you know who you are, the Holy Spirit of God has sealed you until the day of redemption. He's not going anywhere, and he lives inside of you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's always available. He's always accessible. He's just a prayer away. And so as we walk by faith and not by sight, look at this beautiful thing that happens here. I'm not saying it constantly happens all day long, but look at this. The Spirit himself witnesses with our spirit that we're the children of God. You see, this is one of the many, what I call, evidences of salvation. There's lots of evidences of salvation. I already named one earlier. And that is, when you follow Jesus, you're showing that he's changed your life. He lives in you. Here's another evidence. And that is, if you're really born again, the Holy Spirit will witness to your spirit, the spirit inside of you that he made alive, that used to be dead in trespasses and sins. His spirit will witness to your spirit that you're a child of God. Such a beautiful thing. Again, I'm not saying it happens all day long, every day, but every once in a while, you know what I'm talking about. So here's my question. Just think about this for yourself. Do you have that divine witness in your heart? Now, look at verse 18. It says that Mary Magdalene went, okay, so remember, Jesus commissioned her to go and tell my brothers, I'm alive. So, verse 18, she obeys. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. She's so happy now. And that he had said these things to her. And so Mary says, guys, he's risen. By the way, isn't it interesting that God chose a woman to be the first herald of his resurrection? Isn't that cool? He chose a woman, Mary Magdalene, to be the first one to announce the news. Jesus Christ is alive. He has risen. And how did the disciples respond? This is why I'm always telling you guys to read all four Gospels at once because then you get the full picture. Because John doesn't tell us how they responded, but Mark does. Okay, so Mary went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, Mary, they would not believe it. How sad. Mary runs in there, guys, he's risen. He's alive. And they're all looking at her like, whatever. Right? They will not believe. How sad is that? 
Now, let me just pause right here and say something. Um, and that is, if you're listening now, say amen here. And that is that the spirit-filled women in the church have something to say and we all need to listen to it. Do you guys follow that? So why, is it so why is it taking so long for anybody to clap right now? Right? Now in the first century AD, a woman's testimony didn't ha have a lot of weight. But Jesus picked a woman to be the first herald of his resurrection. Philip had seven daughters, book of Acts, who were prophetesses. Okay, and so spirit-filled women have something to say and all of us should be listening with both ears. Husbands, don't you know that your wives had a, have a certain discernment that you don't have? Yeah, it's true. Church family, don't you know that generally speaking, I'm not saying always, but generally speaking, women are more spiritual than men? And so husbands, listen, when you and I are getting about to, getting ready to do something, you know, just kind of like um, cattle going to the slaughter, it's our wives who say, no, 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 honey, 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 come back here for a minute. Think about this. God has gifted them, so we need to listen to one another. In two weeks, we're gonna have um, a couple on this platform for a, a, a marriage weekend. So we're gonna have the privilege of having Jeff and um, I think her name is Shanti Feldhahn. They're Harvard grads, they're best-selling authors, they're social researchers, and they're gonna be here for every single gathering. A man and a woman, and the man and the woman are gonna be sharing biblical principles for our church family under the umbrella of our pastoral leadership. That's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing, okay? There's nothing, there's nothing unbiblical about that at all. And so we need to listen to each other, and I want to say that these guys, sadly, didn't listen to the one that Jesus chose to be the first herald of the resurrection. And I want you to now look at verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day, so this is still Sunday, first Easter Sunday. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Jesus is not a ghost, he's not a phantom. Bodily resurrection. He showed him his hands, he showed him his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so even though they had all forsaken him at the Garden of Gethsemane, in his grace, he offers them his peace. Even though none of them, except for John, listened to Mary Magdalene that he's alive. Even though they, no, 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 right? In his grace, he offers them his peace. Even though they were hard-hearted, stubborn, in his grace, grace, he offers them his peace. Now, now listen, do you guys, are you sensing Jesus' heart towards you? It's not a heart of condemnation. It's a heart of grace. And he doesn't want your lives to be filled with chaos. He wants your lives to be filled with peace. But you're never going to experience the peace of God until you haven't have had an encounter of the grace of God. It's grace and then it's peace. 
And as I'm writing the message this week, it dawned on me that the Apostle Paul, as the Holy Spirit led him, opened up all 13 of his letters with this phrase or a phrase very close to it. Check it out. Grace. Can you guys just shout out the word grace? Grace. Man, grace. That's God's heart to you. It's not condemnation. Because some of you are feeling so beat up. And because of the way that you were raised in a legalistic home where rules were exhausted, exalted over relationship and regulations were exalted over Jesus Christ. And if you didn't keep all those rules, then man, you were shamed and you were despised or whatever. And you've transferred what maybe your parents, the trip your parents put you on, and you think that's God. That is not God. God, as he walks in the room, he sees you, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you are, he's like, peace be with you. Peace be with you. But first, you gotta have a grace encounter before you experience his peace. And so, grace to you and peace. You see the order there? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about all 13 of the Pauline epistles. It's amazing to me. And so in eight of his epistles, okay, so Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, um, um, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon, eight epistles, it's that exact phrase. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then his, his remaining five epistles, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus, it's something very close to that. But my point that I really want you guys to get is this. First comes the word grace, then comes the word peace. Why, Paul, if he was here preaching, he would say this, because you can't experience the peace of God until you've had an encounter of grace. This is my testimony. You see, I grew up in the church. I sat there and saw Jesus hanging on that cross every single Sunday morning of my life. As far as I know, I never missed church unless I was sick. But I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. I thought I had to be a good person and hopefully if I'm good enough and I've kept the rules well enough, then, the, then God is going to accept me. And one day, praise the Lord, on a high school campus, a guy took out a track and gave it to me, a gospel track, and I read it. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And my whole world blew up. And ladies and gentlemen, listen. Someday I'll share my whole testimony if God leads me to during a whole hour. But, but let, me, let me just share this with you. When I stopped trusting Mike Wiggins to save Mike Wiggins by being a good person, and I transferred my trust from me because I knew I was a sinner and I deserved death and hell, when I transferred my trust to Jesus Christ and Christ alone who paid for my sins in full and rose from the dead, that's when, after my grace encounter, I experienced the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Listen, this is an evangelical church, if you haven't heard. Don't get confused with the politics and the news articles that you read, right? Where evangelicals are always lumped in with some kind of poll about how many 
uh, votes from the evangelicals will this candidate get? No, 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 set all that stuff aside. What's an evangelical? One of the hallmarks of being an evangelical is that we believe with all our hearts that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, apart from meritorious works. And maybe you're here today and you've been trying to work your way to heaven. You've been trying to, man, I hope I'm good enough. I hope he accepts me. Listen, God doesn't accept any human being. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but praise God that Jesus, that God, so, um, that God commended or showed his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 21. And so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Why has he got to repeat himself? Because they're just blown away. He says that the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, wow, I, don't you wish you were there? He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now let's stop right there for just a moment. That's pretty amazing. What's going on? Well, here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus right now is giving them a wonderful foretaste of Pentecost. In other words, on the glorious day of Pentecost, you remember resurrection 40 days later is the ascension. Well, 50 days after the resurrection, 50, Pente, is the day of Pentecost. And after Jesus went up, the Spirit came down. And so on the glorious day of Pentecost, on the birthday of the church, guess what happened? The Spirit descended from heaven, and not only did he empower the disciples for ministry, listen to this, if you're listening, say amen here. He indwelt them permanently. That's a big deal. I don't hear that taught a lot, but that's a big deal. Under the old covenant, Holy Spirit came and went, came and went, empowered and left, empowered and left, empowered and left. New covenant, when he comes, he stays, and we are sealed until the day of redemption. And so here's what I think. I think in John 20, we're getting a one, or there they are, getting a wonderful foretaste of what is gonna happen in Acts chapter two when they experience the full reality of Pentecost. In other words, here in John 20, it's kinda like the appetizer before the meal. And then, after he breathes on them, in verse 23, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. All right. Now, I hope some of you are thinking right now, time out. I thought only God can forgive sins. That's true. Okay, so what does Jesus mean here? Well, talk about evangelicalism in a trusted evangelical, uh, Chuck Swindoll. By the way, look, look, look at this man. He has been faithful decade after decade after decade. No scams, no scandals in his ministry. Not perfect, okay, none of us are, but no scams, no scandals. He's about to finish well. I, he probably would disagree with me if he heard me say that, but he's 
getting up there. He's gonna, about, he's, he's gonna finish well. And ladies and gentlemen, we need, in, th in this day and age, when pastors are messing up, we need to honor people like this. We need to aspire to people like this, right? And so he said, if any respond, okay, so what, what, what does Jesus mean in verse 23? If any responded with belief to the disciples' proclamation of the gospel, the disciples had the authority to pronounce them forgiven. That's the idea here. And by the way, just the opposite is true as well. If any responded with unbelief to the disciples' proclamation of the gospel, the disciples had the authority to pronounce them not forgiven. And by the way, this is not just for the early disciples. This is for modern day disciples like you and I today. When we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we share the gospel, depending on that person's response to God's message, is gonna determine whether they're forgiven or not forgiven, and we have the authority, if they accept Christ, to say, you are forgiven, but if they reject Christ, we have the authority to look them in the eye in love and say, you're not forgiven. Why? Because Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. He is the only way. There's one way. All other roads lead to eternal damnation. The road of Jesus Christ leads to forgiveness and leads to eternal salvation. We're entrusted with that gospel and we need to be sharing it with people. And so never forget this. We proclaim the powerful message of forgiveness, but only Christ can perform the powerful miracle of forgiveness in somebody's heart. All right, so... We're gonna read verse 24 all the way to 29. I've already taught through some of this, and then I'm gonna make some concluding remarks. Please stay with me all the way to the end, all right? So if you're looking at verse 24, can you say amen? amen. Here we go. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. He said to, him, to them well, what we already read. You know, I'm not gonna believe until I put my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand to his side. All right, 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Can you imagine for eight days they've been witnessing to him? Oh, no, no, I don't believe. Not unless I see him. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. See his heart? Then he said to Thomas, <laughs> after Thomas picked his jaw up from the ground. Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And that's what the Lord is saying to somebody here in this room this afternoon. Stop disbelieving and just believe. Trust me, I'm a promise keeper, I'm not a promise breaker. And look at Thomas's response, I love it. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Wow, what a great response. He got that part right. My Lord, don't miss this, and my God. Now don't you guys understand that if Jesus was just a man, if he was just a prophet, if he was just a good teacher, if he was just as some of the pseudo-Christian cults say, an exalted angel. In other words, if Jesus 
was just a created being. Don't you know, right here and right now, in the gospel narrative, he would have stopped Thomas and he would have said, Thomas, don't say that. That's blasphemy. Don't say my Lord and my God. But you notice Jesus didn't say that to him? What did Jesus do? He accepted Thomas's confession of faith. Why? Because Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. That's why. He's the true Christ, the Christ of the Bible. Listen, any other Jesus cannot save you. Any other Jesus is a false Jesus. We gotta get this right. We need to get what's called soteriology right, the doctrine of salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then we gotta get this right, Christology. Jesus Christ was and is fully God, fully man. And so he accepts the confession of faith. So I'm gonna end, close my sermon um, by sharing with you guys a quote that I shared with you 50 messages ago when we kicked off the Gospel of John, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. Well, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. (laughs) He'd either be a lunatic or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, like Thomas. But let let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so Thomas sees the risen Christ. Here's his confession. My Lord and my God. My question is this. Is that your confession of faith? Even though you haven't seen him. You see, Jesus says in our last verse today, verse 29, Have you believed, Thomas, because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.